I think uh, the older I get, my perspective on Christmas changes. I don't know if that happens with you, but uh, I think when you're a kid, you're willing to put up with all the junk just to get to the presents, you know? Just being honest, you know? Eggnog, that's terrible. Fruitcake, that's horrible. But if I got to go through all that to get to the presents as a kid, that's really, you know, hey, I'll, I'll put up with it if that's what I want to get to. The older I get, the more I, I, I think I appre- appreciate some of the pageantry related to uh, Christmas. Maybe I'm in my old age, I'm getting more sentimental and appreciating that. But um, it seems like every season there's something new to appreciate that I could have been appreciating all the time and just, I guess, the youthful zeal of life maybe haven't considered it. One of the traditions in the Davis household to get ready for Christmas is to get rid of old toys that you don't play with anymore. We're not getting you any new ones until you get rid of the ones that you don't have anymore. I think it was a couple years ago, uh, we were making our annual pilgrimage to um, Goodwill and uh, found some of those good old trusted, tried and true kids' toys. Mr. Potato Head. Although the problem is, I don't know if it's Mr. Potato Head or Mrs. Potato Head. He or she was missing so many parts, I didn't know if he had the bright red lips or what. And you've seen the little twisty guys. You remember the little twisty guy, little green guy? You can make him do whatever you want with his arms, Mr. Gumby. Kind of fun. You know, with a kid, uh, you can twist that into whatever very ingenious or grotesque thing that you want. It all is kind of a matter of beauty being within the eye of the beholder. But I do think this, when we talk about, you know, twisting things around, Mr. Potato Head or Mr. Gumby, I don't know if you have uh, ever done this. I don't really encourage it, uh, but walked around at Walmart, um, can be really dangerous for your health, but there's some interesting people that are there too. And I think as we, uh, I think there's a website related to that as well. Uh, I think the, uh, see, you all know you've been there. Um, you head into the holiday season and you go to Walmart and you watch everybody shopping and they just seem, and I guess, honestly, this is probably a pretty good metaphor. Uh, spiritually speaking, they are zombies completely dead to the meaning of what the holiday is all about. They will run you over to get the sale price on that 55-inch flat-screen smart TV. And they don't care what they have to do when there's only one that's left. And so it's very hard to sometimes see the, the essence and the spirit of Christmas when we're so consumed with consumerism when even, you know, our own family, we have to get rid of stuff. Why? To get more stuff. It's just, it's a problem. And the truth is, to, to bear out this illustration much further than it was ever intended to go, when we talk about Mr. Gumby or Mr. Potato Head, my fear is that even when it comes to the holiday season, that's kind of our approach to the Christian message. We'll, we'll twist it and manipulate it to be what we want it to be. So if you're into black liberation theology, the, theology there's a Jesus of that flavor. If you're a communist, there's a communist Jesus just for you. You've got to make sure you go to the right shop. If you want a feminist Jesus, well, he had long hair, so that kind of halfway qualifies him. You know? And so you have all of these Jesuses that we twist to suit our own personal fancy where Jesus isn't actually Jesus at all. We're the one who's in charge. And we treat truth kind of like a smorgasbord buffet. Skip the veggies and get you three desserts if you want because you're in charge. The thing that's troubling is that Jesus doesn't play that way. He's not just Savior or Lord. He's both. He's not just cute and cuddly little baby that we hold in our hands. He's the God of the universe that holds everything together. And I fear sometimes that we don't allow the message of Christmas to come through because we've changed and morphed it into something that is different than what it was intended to be. 
This morning as we come to Matthew chapter 27 and we continue in the crucifixion narratives in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we see two men who tried to do that very thing. They tried to twist and manipulate Jesus to get him on their terms, not on his terms. And as we come to Matthew 27, we come to a narrative transition in verses 1 and 2 where there is, uh, for lack of a better term, a prisoner transfer that is taking place. The marshals are there, uh, the guards are there, the man is bound and he's brought out. Follow along with me as we see this. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and all the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And after tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. As we've been working consecutively through God's word, we saw last week that there was a uh, midnight session of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, to accuse and um, uh, pronounce judgment upon Jesus. The problem is that midnight meetings of the Sanhedrin are illegal. And so at sometime between 1 and 3 in the morning, Jesus is, is brought from the Garden of Gethsemane to Caiaphas's palace where he is tried before the Jewish tribunal. And here, at the beginning of chapter 27, it's daybreak. So what happens to Jesus between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m.? Sounds like a commercial for 24 television show. He was locked up in prison. We don't think about that. Jesus is an ex-con. Jesus is locked into a cell. He's not free. He's, he's been arrested in the garden. Uh, the proceeding before the high court was not all night. It probably was less than an hour. So what did Jesus do the rest of the night? Well, not what he wanted to do, what they forced him to do. Jesus is incarcerated. Well, because that midnight meeting is illegal, as soon as daybreak comes, they, they reconvene the entire Sanhedrin. And the verdict has already been decided, but they need to make things appear legit because they're about to take it to the Roman governor. And so I don't think all of the Sanhedrin gathered in the middle of the night. There was probably a little inner circle that, that, that were the kind of the power brokers of the Sanhedrin. Well, now they don't just want them to be out on the limb. They want the entire Sanhedrin to be out on the limb with them. So they reconvene. They, they try to uh, meet all these quick formalities, and they pass him off to Pilate. Why? Because the Jews had no power uh, to punish him, and they could punish him, chastise him, but that's not the kind of punishment they want. They want to put him to death, and they have no power to do that. So they have to cooperate with the Roman government because the death penalty is under their control. And this leads to a very dramatic encounter. Because if you know anything about Pilate, Pilate was the most politically incorrect ruler of the Jews. He did all kinds of things to desecrate the temple. He brought in his, um, his flags with uh, uh, what, what Jews would consider to be idolatrous uh, standards on those. And he did it on purpose. He did it in the middle of the night so that when they woke up in the morning, there was no protest. And they wake up in the morning like, what did he do? He did not like the Jews at all. And so in this episode, Pilate appears very sympathetic to Jesus. And, 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 and be careful, watch out, because Pilate is not for Jesus. He is against the Jews. And if he can uh, stick it to the Jews by being nice to Jesus, he's going to do that. And so here's this picture as this episode begins to unfold and open up before us of Jesus, the prisoner, bound before a temporal ruler so that you and I have the right to stand freely before the eternal ruler. The juxtaposition there is overwhelming. But in essence, we see two very 
tragic, flawed characters, the first of who is Judas in verses 3 through 10. And the thing that we see about Judas is that Judas is overcome with a remorse that absolutely wrecks his life. A remorse that wrecks his life. Look at verses 3 through 10. God's word says, Then Judas, and in case you forgot who he is, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us? The Sanhedrin said back. See to it yourself. It's your problem. So Judas threw the silver into the sanctuary and departed, and he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, it's not lawful to put it into the temple treasury because it's blood money. So they conferred together and bought the potter's field uh, and designed it to be a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. We're aware of what Judas has done. He's the man that betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And because verse 3 starts with a temporal word, then, that is in connection to uh, verse 2 in front of it, Jesus being escorted from Caiaphas' palace to uh, Pilate's palace, then Judas. There's this time word that seems to indicate that Judas is fully aware of what has happened throughout the evening, and he sees perhaps... In his, his physical eyesight, Jesus being processed from Caiaphas to Pilate. It says that uh, Judas appears to have a very different opinion than he had the night before. Perhaps he expected the outcome to be just a little bit different. Maybe he thought by forcing Ju- Jesus' hand that when Jesus appeared formally and uh, literally in front of the Sanhedrin, that the incredible nature of his teaching and the meekness of his character would convict the Sanhedrin and they would fall on their faces and repent before their long-awaited Messiah. Maybe he thought that Jesus would zap them for their lack of repentance, and he would initiate his kingdom right then and right there. Whatever happens, we know that Judas had a different opinion, on uh, a different plan on how things were going to happen, and when he sees that Jesus was condemned, he was full of remorse. And Jesus' condemnation sparks a different perspective. So what does he do? He returns to the Jews and he returns the money. And the words that Judas speaks here are very important. Look at what it says in verse, oh, what is it? Verse four. It says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas admits his sin of betraying Jesus and confesses what? Not Jesus as Lord, He confesses that Jesus was a good man. He confesses his innocence. Judas admits his sin and confesses Jesus' innocence. Now, this should send shockwaves through the Jewish Sanhedrin because all throughout the Old Testament, there's all of these minute laws, uh, especially in the book of Leviticus, that, oh, let's just say you own a bunch of cows, and one of your cows, through no fault, no negligence of your own, escapes and tramples over somebody and kills them to death. There are specific laws of reparation uh, to to cover that. So the shedding of innocent blood in the Old Testament makes up a significant portion of the Old Testament laws. So Judas comes and says, I've given, I've borne false testimony. Jesus is innocent. He's not guilty of anything. 
<clears throat> and instead of giving credence to the Old Testament law, they say, well, what do we care? That's your problem. You're the one that lied. I mean, that ship has sailed. We've already got him before Pilate. He's going to die. And Judas is guilty. The Old Testament leaders are unfazed at Judas's confession. And so Judas, coming to them, finds no sympathy, and he finds no solution to his sin. So he feels, he thinks, that his only option is suicide. He goes to his partners in crime. After all, they are partners in crime. But note this. Your friends and evil are not truly your friends because if they, if they are participating in evil with you, when they've got an opportunity to stick you in the back, they will. And Judas learns the hard way that enemies and evil are not truly friends. And in a twist of um, ironic hypocrisy, the Jewish leaders get very offended that Judas threw his blood money into the temple because we can't use that for godly purposes. Despite the fact that they're the ones that created the occasion for the blood money to exist in the first place, so they turn it over to civic purposes and they buy a field that becomes a cemetery for foreigners. And Matthew says, oh, by the way, this fulfills prophecy. Now, there's several interesting things that we could talk about here. Um, how did Judas die? It says here that he hanged himself, but in Acts it says that he fell over and his gut spilled out. How do we reconcile those two? Who bought the field? In uh, Matthew, it says that the Jewish leaders did, but in Acts, it says that Judas did. Um, why is this scripture allusion that comes from Zechariah attributed to Jeremiah? Uh, we don't have time for that. For those of you that are Bible scholars, Bible nerds, and you want to know, uh, talk to me after the service, and I can maybe try to address those. Matthew's not interested in all those kind of minute questions. There are two very compelling questions that he deals with over and over again. And the first is this, when we talk about um, the, the buying of the field with the money, is that every little detail is a fulfillment of prophecy, even down to the fact of what they do with the 30 pieces of silver that they gave Judas, they buy the field. The point is this, that despite the terrible things that are about to happen to God the Son, through it all, God the Father is completely in charge. Completely in charge. They think they're just kind of rolling with it. Well, we can't use the money, can't put it in the offering plate because it's polluted money. Let's go buy a field. And even in their action, their plan B, God is demonstrating that he's in charge and fulfilling scripture. But secondly, and if there's nothing else you hear, I think this is, this is where <clears throat> you need to really tune in. The story of Judas shows that it is very possible to be with Jesus and yet end up very far Now, you, you asked me to fill in the blanks. I think Judas is not a believer. I think Judas is in hell. I think he gave the appearance of being a believer. We'll talk about this here a little bit more. But you think about what he dealt with. Judas heard the best sermons. He didn't have to deal with what y'all have to deal with. He got to hear Jesus himself preach. He got to enjoy private instruction. The most intimate of associations. He witnessed the most amazing miracles, and yet he was lost. Why do I think that? I think there's two things. Number one, Matthew gives a hint when he talks about Judas's intense sadness. And the word that he uses for Judas' intense sadness is not the word we would expect to find in the rest of, New Testament, uh, rest of the New Testament for repentance, which is metanoia. He uses a word that I'm not going to try to pronounce for you that indicates regret, not repentance. 
So Judas is not repenting. He's sorry for what he's done, but being sorry is not the same as repenting who you are and what you've done. And so he expresses regret, not repentance. And this episode displays that remorse ruins while repentance restores. Peter doesn't come out as a really good character in all of this either, but what happens to Peter? Because he repents, he gets restored. Because Judas is merely regretful, he is lost. But you sit there and you go, but look at all the things that Judas did right. He admitted his sin. He returned the money. He stated Jesus' character. But yeah, he didn't affirm Jesus' sonship. He said, hey, Jesus, Jesus is a good guy. He's certainly innocent of what I've accused him of. There's a whole lot of difference between affirming Jesus' character as a good guy and affirming him as the incarnate son of God. He doesn't confess his deity, just his good humanity. He even turns, Judas even turns to the religious leaders to absolve him of his sin. Hey guys, we made a mistake here. Uh, I gave false testimony, so because the whole basis of this was false, I lied, we need to undo it all. He's trying to make things right. The problem is, as humans, we are always tempted to try to fix our sin ourselves or to go to someone else to fix it. But the Bible's very clear, there's only one person that can fix your sin. And it's the person that Judas has betrayed. So Judas goes running everywhere he can, giving the money back, saying, hey, I've messed up. And he do- the only person he doesn't talk to in this entire episode is the person that Jesus instructed him to talk to when he says, when you pray, do it this way. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Judas knew what to do. But he didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be and then gets sad because he's sold out a good man who just happens not to be the God that he claims to be. Since Jerusalem's pastors, the high priests, and the, um, the scribes refused to provide Judas with any assistance for his sin, Judas goes ahead and pronounces judgment upon his sin and then commits suicide. And to be clear, suicide is not an unpardonable sin. Lack of faith in Christ is the unpardonable sin. Judas doesn't go to hell because he committed suicide. It's terrible that he was so depressed that he felt like that was his only option. But he felt like that was his only option because he didn't truly listen that Jesus was the source for all of his sins. And so because he doesn't get any help from Jerusalem's pastors, he passes judgment upon himself. He sentences sentences himself to death. And we're reminded of the scripture in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It's not on the scriptures here. Write that down in your margin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. Sorrow, according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow of the world doesn't get you anywhere. So in Judas, we see it's possible to spend time with Jesus and still end up very far from him. Our second tragic figure is Pilate. And Pilate is most famously known for unrighteously condemning an innocent man. Unrighteously condemning an innocent man. Now we know that Jesus is far more than just an innocent man. The Bible testifies that he is the only one righteous who can act as a substitute sacrifice bearing our sins in our place. The reason I make a big point of saying that he's unrighteously condemning an innocent man is that even from Pilate's own lips three times, he says that he doesn't see any guilt that justifies this proceeding against him. So Pilate, by his own mouth, 
would confess that he has condemned an innocent man. The story with Pilate begins in verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you have said it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus did not answer. Then Pilate said to Jesus, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But Jesus did not answer him on even one charge so that the governor was amazed. See, the Jews are pretty savvy people. They understand that while Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, the charge of blasphemy is in its essence a religious charge. And Pilate will never, who has the power to kill, will never sentence Jesus to death merely based upon a charge of blasphemy. There's got to be something that has a little more grit to it, something that has a little more grasp to it. It's religious and therefore insufficient for the secular authorities to intervene. So the Jews come up with a political charge. You see, what's the very first question that Pilate asked Jesus in Matthew when he's alone with him? Are you the king of the Jews? How does he figure that out? Because the Jews tell him. He's made the claim to be a king. Matthew chapter 23 lists several charges that the Jews threw out about Jesus. They said he, uh, he's misleading the nation. He's forbidding paying taxes, both of which are not true. He claims to be a king, and he's just in general a troublemaker. He's making trouble everywhere he goes. They're going to throw the kitchen sink at Jesus and just hope that one of the charges sticks. And because there is a king, and his name is Caesar, for Jesus to claim to be a king is tantamount to inciting a rebellion And now Pilate, as a loyal servant of the king Caesar, has to investigate. They have manipulated Pilate into doing something that he doesn't want to do. I love the way that it's stated in John 18.36. It's on the screen. John includes a little more detail than Matthew does, and it says that when he asks him, Jesus provides a little point of clarification to Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, My kingdom does not have its origin here. Yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king that you think I am. And Jesus' muteness, not speaking against any of the charges, is silent testimony to his willingness to die as a ransom. He is quiet here, silent here, in order that he might be our spokesman before his father when he has accomplished our redemption. It's a beautiful picture. It continues in verses 15 through 18. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew that they had handed Jesus over because of envy. Pilate knows what's going on. Jesus has this popular appeal and this love of the crowds that the Jews want for themselves. They're jealous. They're envious. And he knows that that's the reason that they have turned him over. So because he knows that's where the Jewish leadership is, Pilate goes, I don't get this. But he appeals to the crowds to release the prisoners. The challenge is he's the governor. He doesn't need the people's permission to do what is right. He just kind of licks his finger and sees which ways the wind is blowing and says, obviously he's expecting the crowd to free Jesus because he's not done anything wrong. And he provides this contrast. He asks them the question, hey crowd, what do you want? The criminal or the Christ? Think about that contrast for a second. 
a man who is known as a murderer and an insurrectionist and a robber and Jesus. Which do you want? And as we'll see, there's not even a moment's hesitation. This whole proceeding gets interrupted because while Pilate is making the offer to release one of, his, one of these prisoners, verse 19 happens. It says, While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him. Listen to how she describes this. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Pilate's whole intention all along is to stick it to the Jews by releasing Jesus. And while he goes to consider this request that his wife has given, John's gospel tells us that he has Jesus beaten, he has a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and in mockery he has a purple robe put upon him. So that when he gets done with this consideration, he comes back and says, all right, guys, I didn't hear from you. Which one do you want, the Christ or the criminal? Jesus is now humiliated. He is bloodied and beaten and bruised, and he's trying to... um, manufacture some sympathy from the crowd. He's in the process of trying to stack the deck in his favor because he knows that Jesus needs to be released. And so it's, it's terribly ironic that an outsider, Pilate's wife, a non-Jew is more perceptive about the character of Christ than the Jews are who have been waiting forever for their Messiah to show up. While this interlude is happening, Pilate comes back to present Jesus to the crowd, but the Jewish leaders have exerted their influence. They understand what Pilate's trying to do, and they're not going to let it happen. They go throughout the crowds, and what we see is that Pilate, the politician, gets out politicked in verses 20 through 23. So his wife makes the request in verse 19. He considers it. Verse 20, the chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them. They're not the governor. Pilate asks the crowd, what should I do with Jesus? By his own lips, he asked the question. The question of all question. The question upon which you will be judged. Not just Pilate, but all every single one of us. What shall we do with Jesus? And they demand his crucifixion. It's interesting that twice in this passage, Pilate refers to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And when he asks them to explain exactly what is going on, he says, why do you want me to crucify him? Verse 23, what has he done? They just kept shouting, crucify him all the more. When he asks for a reason, the crowd does not give any reason in their response. They just shout shout louder. You ever been in a conflict where you think that whoever gets loudest wins? Doesn't work that way, except in politics. That's what happens. There is no charge. There is no reason. And the fewer reasons they have, the higher the volume, the more they emote because they don't have a reason to do it. And Pilate proves to be a coward. John 19, 12 records that, again, the Jews have out-politicked Pilate because in 19, 12 they say this. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend, and anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. What are they implying? They're just saying, by the way, we know how this works. If this man is claimed to be a king and you don't do anything about it, 
then we're going to have to do our uh, lawfully bidden um, responsibility and turn you into Caesar. They've painted him into a corner. And while he knows that Jesus is innocent, he fears being uh, ratted out to Caesar and he consents to Jesus's, the innocent man's, crucifixion in verses 24 through 26. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And Pilate released Barabbas to them, but after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And an act affirming Jesus' innocence in the most ultimate way, Pilate washes his hands as if that water will free him of the guilt of what he's about to do. Because make no mistake about this, as the governor, John 19.10, makes very clear, Pilate has the authority. Look at what it says. When Jesus was not answering the questions, Pilate says, are you not going to talk to me? Don't you understand, uh, verse 9, uh, John 19.10, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? To which Jesus very meekly, but boom, responds, you don't have any authority except the authority that my Father has given you. Even to do this unthinkable thing of crucifying an innocent man. Pilate does it. Pilate does it. The power to free him. He stated at least three times that he doesn't see any criminal charges in Jesus, yet he consents with his death. While Pilate denies responsibility, what does the crowd do? Verse 20, I'm sorry, what is that? Verse 26, yeah. No, I'm sorry, verse 25. All the people, all the people respond with a most despicable culpability, even condemning their children. You don't want Jesus' blood on your hands? Put it on our heads and soak our kids in it too. They're so content, so emphatic about the crucifixion of Christ that they're willing to condemn even their own children. So Barabbas is released, and it says that Jesus is then released, not for freedom, but to be flogged. And there is no way, the language would be entirely too graphic to explain exactly what flogging was. This is not merely a punishment. It is uh, one of the most egregious ways to prepare someone to die more quickly. It was a whip with many strands to it, to which were affixed bone and metal and stone. And while the Jews had specific laws regulating down to a science how to beat you within an inch of your life. The only law that um, mediated what the Romans did was when does their arm get tired? And there's reports of many people being prepared for crucifixion by flogging who died in the flogging didn't even make it to the crucifixion. Because the way that this uh, whip would tear your skin was so egregious that it would rip arteries. Inner organs would spill out. And so this was not merely, hey, we need to punish you. This was, how do we make you die more quickly so that you're not hanging on the cross? We want to go home and be with our wife and kids tonight, so let's get you killed and get over with it. That's what flogging, in in, in the most incredible way, while we understand that Jesus took our place, there were three crosses that were prepared. Barabbas and two of of the people in his insurrection. And Jesus, in a very literal fashion, takes the place of Barabbas, whose cross was already prepared, but at the last minute gets to go free. The point of this entire story was 
with, with, with Pilate is this. You can believe the right thing, Jesus is innocent, and not do the right thing, consent to his crucifixion. Judas spends much time with, but ends up far from. Pilate believes the right thing, and yet does not do the right thing. And this brings us to this most penetrating question that Pilate asked that is a perennial question for us today. What do we do with Jesus? You see, if Judas would have known what to do with Jesus, he wouldn't have tried to manipulate Jesus to have this confrontation with the religious authorities, and it was only too late that he recognized the foolishness of his ways. And sadly for Judas, he tries to take his sin to everyone else except for the one who could help. Pilate, he tried to get all philosophical and kind of dance around the truth of who Jesus was. He knew that he was innocent, but the problem was Pilate wasn't just dancing with Jesus and with truth. He was dancing with the Jewish leaders. And the problem is you really only can dance with one person at a time, and somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And the Jews win and Jesus loses because he wants to play politics. He had to choose who he wanted to dance with the most. And so despite personally believing in Jesus' innocence, he bears responsibility, no matter how much he has washed his hands, to crucify, to execute a man who is innocent. Both men want to be right, but Judas's remorse does not cleanse him from his sin, and Pilate's washing of his hands does not prove to be a detergent that can remove sin's stain. We sing a song that asks the question, what can wash away my sin? What's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So you don't want to leave the service today. You don't want to get ready to take the Lord's Supper and go, yeah, I'm Judas. Yeah, I'm Pilate. So how do you avoid being a Judas or a Pilate? A couple things. Number one, do you acknowledge Jesus is the way to deal with your sin? Do you acknowledge Jesus is the way to deal with your sin? And I'm not talking about praying a prayer one time or walking an aisle one time. If, if I get into it with David Bennett, or I am duty-bound to make things right with David if we want to be in fellowship together. And my fear is when we think that we have an interpersonal problem, that the only way that this interpersonal problem works is this way. You know what? If I've got a problem with David... I've got a problem with God because I'm out of fellowship with a person who's made in the image of God. And the Bible tells me all kinds of one another's. I'm supposed to love, we're supposed to love one another, bear one another's burdens, care for one another, put up with one another. And if I have a problem this way relationally, I have a problem this way relationally. And yet most of us are content to make this right and just assume it's none of God's business. I made everything right with David, God. You've got to be okay with that. Now, every sin that you sin is a sin in two directions. On the human level and on the, the God level. Kids, if you don't listen to your parents, you're not listening to God. So you don't just need to apologize and repent to your parents. You need to repent to God. And my fear is that we have become so much like Judas in trying to deal with our sin our own way that we never uh, deal with sin God's way. We deal with it in a human manufactured way that lets us put our head on our pillow at night and feel like I've made everything right with David, so I'm good. But our sin is never simply against another human being. It is always against God as well. Do you recognize Jesus as the way to deal with your sin or do you try 
like Judas, to deal with it on their own. How do you avoid being a pilot? The Roman governor. Is Jesus the north star by which you navigate? Pilate had a decision to make. And instead of navigating by the truth of who Jesus was, he navigated by the uh, polling of popular opinion. Just like we do. You have all kinds of decisions to make. Some of you in this next year will move. Maybe not anywhere insignificant, you know, maybe not a significant move out of this zip code, but you will move. Some of you have moved this year. How has your relationship with Christ determined where you move? Because I'll tell you what will happen this year. There will be people who move further away from the church, and then next year we'll see them less because it's more inconvenient for them to come back. So they have made a pretty important decision about where they're going to live, and Jesus has not been the North Star. It has been, wow, look at that house. I get more for my money. And without asking Jesus what he wants me to do with my money or where I live and where's a community that I can invest my life that makes it easy for me to be involved in church, not a move that's going to make me be less involved in church, we do not allow Jesus to be the North Star by which we navigate. He's not the foundation of our decision-making. And Jesus tells us that he is the life, and we're about to celebrate that in partaking of the Lord's Supper. But he can only be your life if he is your truth and if he is your way. What does it mean for him to be your life if you don't care about who he is and you don't live the way that he wants you to? Jesus is only the life for the people that acknowledge him as the truth and the way that they walk. Father, it is a precious truth that you are indeed the way the truth, and ultimately the life. There is perhaps no people group on the planet that emphasizes their rights over their responsibilities more than us. Father, if we claim that you are our life, help us to demonstrate that you are our capital T truth, You are our capital W way that we want to walk the way that you would have us to. Because in your death on the cross, you have bought us to glorify you. You've given us your spirit to cause us to walk in newness of life. And sometimes it's just really hard to get out of those old paths in which we walk. So Father, as we have the opportunity, as our invitation this morning is to partake in this meal, symbolizing your sacrifice for us. We pray by faith that you will convict and you will encourage and you will motivate. In Jesus' name we pray.